Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Actus Podcast, a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. I'm Linnea Archibald, the Associate Editorial Director for Actus, and I'll be your host for today's show, which is part of our Leadership with Linnea series. In every episode of this series, I'll be joined by one guest from the Actus Leadership Council ranks or a contributor from one of our Actus publications to discuss a topic relevant to leaders in the industry, whether or not they currently hold a traditional management title. Today's topic is outpatient CDI, both inside and outside the hospital walls, and I'm joined by Tammy McMasters-Gomez, MHL, BSHIM, CCDS, CDIP, who is the Director of Coding and CDI Services at the University of California Medical Center at Davis in Sacramento. She has more than 30 years of experience in HIM, starting her career as a file clerk in the medical records department of a small rural hospital. Tammy has worked in a variety of roles, including coder, auditor, supervisor, manager, and director. She is the proud recipient of the Actus 2022 CDI Professional Achievement Award, and she is a member of the Actus Leadership Council. Welcome to the show, Tammy. Before we jump into our topic, a brief word about today's sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Nuance Communications. Nuance Communications is a technology pioneer with market leadership in conversational AI and ambient intelligence. A full service partner trusted by 77% of US hospitals and 85% of the Fortune 100 companies worldwide, Nuance creates intuitive solutions that amplify people's ability to help others. And now back to the show. So thanks so much for joining us today, Tammy. I'm really excited to sit down with you to discuss outpatient CDI. And to start off our conversation, I would love to hear a little overview of your outpatient program. What settings does your team review? What are they focusing on? And how did you select that focus area to begin with? And then how's your program staffed? All of those type of kind of programmatic questions. Sure. So um, back in, I think it was 2018, I was asked to take a look at a population of patients that we had recently gone into a contractual agreement with that would be risk adjusted. It went and it encompassed about 30,000 lives. It was the Medicare shared savings population. And um, at that time, I didn't have staff. I didn't have an outpatient CDI program in place. And so I really quickly just kind of looked for a way to get staff in place. And that's why I used contractors initially. I used three and I did a really targeted approach on like low hanging fruit, which is those patients who had multiple visits in an outpatient setting um, that had a RAF score of less than one. So we targeted those patients and we were able to do a quick kind of review and show the return on investment uh, to leadership to say, hey, if we were able to touch all of these patients, um, we could really see significant um, improvements in our HGC capture and in our RAF score and in return, um, higher reimbursement for those more complicated risk-adjusted patients. And so um, from there, you know, I had to establish a workflow and, and you know, kind of build a, a team um, around, the, you know, what they were asking us to do once we were able to demonstrate that it could be done. So I'm happy to kind of walk through, you know, how we built a team and how we staffed um, so, you know, we're, we're currently uh, staffed with eight FTEs that do clinical reviews, and we have one data analyst that kind of runs all of 
um, you know, my productivity numbers, uh, dashboards, databases, different things that we use for collecting data. Um, and that has been in place since about 2020. And so during COVID, uh, we also embarked on, you know, a, a, a technology within the HCC world. So we had already adopted on the inpatient side, a computer assisted physician documentation, physician forwarding um, AI product that reads and reasons over the documentation and then queries the providers at the point of care. And so we were looking to adopt something similar on the outpatient side. And so we embarked on a journey with um, implementing HCC management, uh, which we're currently piloting with our providers and um, testing and getting feedback and tweaking. And so that's where we are today. A lot of work has gone into um, kind of building this team uh, so that we could be at the forefront of emerging emerging technology and adopting uh, things that are, you know, in the future, I think, going to be best practice within outpatient CDI. Absolutely. And I, I think one of the things that I that you mentioned that I want to call attention to, I think a lot of people think of contract staff as sort of a way to outsource CDI, but I think it's really fascinating and valuable to think about that from a piloting perspective. Like you mentioned that you had three contract staff that you used to pilot the program and sort of prove that it was worth it. That's so interesting. And I think such a valuable way to use, um, that type of staffing model that a lot of folks I think just don't even think of. I think they hear they hear contract and they think outsourced, um, but using them in that kind of focused way I think is is really interesting. The staff that we initially brought on as contractors, once we were able to get funding for the program and post positions to hire, uh, they actually applied for those positions and were converted from contractors to staff. And so they've made a great addition because they helped kind of bring the, the program uh, to life and were there from the beginning. That's really wonderful. And it's a, it really is a testament as well to your program and the experience they had there, I would think, because, you know, they they were in theory temporary employees, contract staff, and that when that chance arose that they could join permanently, they jumped at it. So I think that's, um, that's a really wonderful story. Um, can you talk us through your outpatient review process? And does that differ based on whether your staff are reviewing a hospital-based outpatient setting or a non-hospital-based setting? And then are there any common query opportunities that you see pretty regularly? So it really doesn't differ between hospital-based or community-based clinics. The reviews are done prospectively. As uh, the only difference is really is in the ED when we're doing clinical reviews, those can't be prospective. It's an emergency room, to, you know, kind of environment where people are showing up in, in that sense of, you know, kind of an emergency type situation. And so the way that it works now is um, in the clinic setting, whether it's an inpatient um, a hospital-based clinic or a um, community-based clinic, um, the teams will do a prospective review looking at the record two days in advance to look for opportunities to place a query and get more specific documentation on the record. And in the ED, there's a list um, that comes out um, the day before, or I'm sorry, the day after the patient's been seen. And our clinical reviewer is looking at um, any Medicare patients that are in a risk-adjusted kind of um, payer um, agreement and placing a query on the chart for the physician, which was retrospective. 
And we're really looking um, for HCCs, obviously, but some of the more common ones that we do see are things like diabetes specificity or diabetic manifestations, lots of mental health since the pandemic, and looking for specificity behind some of those mental health diagnoses like depression and anxiety. A lot of um, kidney stage, so patients are, you know, um, coming in from year to year and, you know, maybe last year their kidney stage was two and, and we're, we're seeing now documentation that may suggest that it could have progressed to a stage three. So those are some of the more common ones we're seeing today uh, in, the, in the current environment. You just echoed what we talked about a couple months ago. I had um, someone on from from Baptist, and they mentioned the exact same query opportunities, those HCCs, the diabetes, and especially the, the mental health. And I think you made a great point about um, that is becoming even more important kind of post-COVID <laughs> than maybe it was before, sadly. Um, so I think it's that's definitely one to keep on your radar if you're reviewing in these settings. And I, I also find it interesting that you're sort of doing, when we talk about outpatient, we often hear people either reviewing prospectively or retrospectively, and you're sort of doing both. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of fun. You get to do both worlds there, um, or, you know, hectic, however you want to look at it. Um, but I, that's, that's very interesting to me. Um, thinking back to when you first started with your outpatient program, what first steps did you have to take? What were you looking at to kind of prove that the model was successful and even worth pursuing? So worth pursuing beyond those few contract staff you had? And then how did you determine how many staff you needed and what resources you were going to need to really launch this program? So as I mentioned in the beginning, um, we did do a pilot and I really did, uh, you know, in my opinion, cherry pick. We were looking for those patients that we knew um, were a little bit more complex, had multiple visits, um, you know, throughout the year, but had a RAF score of less than one so that we could demonstrate really quickly that there was opportunity with at least 25 percent of this, you know, this population. Um, and then we actually forecasted and did some predictive, predictive analytics to demonstrate what we could do elsewhere. And so it, it really was about, um, you know, showing what we could do through a pilot, um, pulling some additional data and analytics on opportunities that we found um, where there was lack of specificity. So pulling coding data to share uh, with leadership, look how often we're coding unspecified depression. Look how often we're coding unspecified diabetes or, you know, so showing the opportunity through that avenue about um, the lack of specificity with coded cases historically. And then we looked at how many patients we would need to see annually and kind of looked at what best practice was with staffing. And what we found was that each person could re review anywhere between 1,500 to 3,000 a year, depending on the complexity of the patients. And we found a medium in there. Um, I think our, our, our staff is looking about 2,200 a year. Um, and that's 30 cases on average a day. A little bit, it could, it could go down, it could go up, really depending on what, what's going on. And, and so that's what we've done. We've created a model where um, we look at the schedules prospectively two days in advance, and the staff actually know through a database we've created which, which people fall on their list. They're assigned automatically. We've created automation around 
assignment as well. And then they go in and they review those cases prospectively. And then, you know, in the ED, it's a little different, but um, that's the model we've, we've chosen. Um, and the resources really were um, mostly just staffing at the time because we didn't have any technology um, yet worthy of kind of taking a look at. And, and so now what we're doing is, and we're embarking on technology and we're hoping that this technology um, provides more of a helping hand to the staff and will eliminate needing additional staffing perhaps in the future if maybe this product can catch some of that low-hanging fruit um, as we start to expand and have more and more patients um, that turn to a more payer, risk-adjustment payer model. Yeah, that's awesome. I think um, the technology piece is, it's so new for outpatient. I feel like, like you said, when you started, there weren't really options out there for you to choose from. And now there are options, which is wonderful, but it's a whole new, um, whole new landscape, which is exciting and terrifying all at once. And um, just to to go back a little bit to the ED piece, um, was the ED reviews lumped in with your inpatient reviews or do you have like kind of a separate process and staff that are reviewing those records? Yeah. So we have an entirely separate inpatient CDI program and their review process is concurrent uh, while the patient's in-house. So they get, uh, anytime a patient gets admitted, um, we, we do um, pretty much review hundred percent of all of our admissions at UC Davis uh, with the exception of like normal newborns and rehab. Um, and so, and then sometimes we don't get to them if they're here one day and go home and, and, um, you know, so there's some nuances there as well, but we touch probably close to 90, uh, 99% of, of all uh, hospital admissions, but that's done concurrently at the, uh, uh, as the patients in the hospital. And are they the ones that are reviewing the ED records or do you have outpatient staff reviewing those? Yeah, I have one dedicated outpatient CDI that does ED. Awesome. Yeah, I know that often seems to be an avenue that folks kind of get their feet wet in the outpatient world with ED because it's still within your hospital. (laughs) So it's a little bit easier to kind of branch out to doing that than, you know, launching a whole program in a clinic um, can feel a little, a little uh, ambitious. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, it kind of mirrors the inpatient workflow, if you will, um, where, you know, we ask the physicians if they can further specify the type of kidney stage. But when you think about a traditional primary care provider who's familiar with that patient versus somebody showing up in the ED for the first time, it's really a new patient to them. And so sometimes they just aren't as qualified or don't feel as comfortable answering the the queries. And so our query response rates in the ED are a little less than they are in the, in the clinic setting and the inpatient setting. And I think that's just the nature of ED. These aren't patients that they're intimately familiar with um, compared to like your primary care provider or your attending in the inpatient setting. Absolutely. And the timing is different too. I mean, I think... Um the difference between concurrent and prospective versus retrospective, it can be, I would imagine, it's sometimes harder to pin down a a physician (laughs) to get that response after the patient's gone. (laughs) Right. That timing matters because, you know, if they've already done their documentation and they've moved on and our query comes then retrospectively, I think it's a little harder to get them engaged. Um, But if you can get them that query before they've actually completed their documentation, that's the sweet spot for us. Absolutely. So I know one of the things we hear all the time with outpatient is that tracking impact is 
challenging, partly as we've talked about that there's just there aren't that many tools on the market um, and partly also because the reimbursement models are prospective in nature. It's harder to kind of nail down your actual impact. So what metrics are you using to show your impact? How have you seen your efforts pay off? I know you're like the data queen, so I would love to hear about this. Yeah, so I had to kind of homegrown all of my outpatient tracking mechanisms. I've created databases, uh, we've created Tableau dashboards. Um, we have a, a third party in population health that's also tracking data that I connect to in terms of that data source. But we're, we're tracking HCC capture. We're tracking RAF score. We're tracking query agreement and response rates and physician engagement and physician non-response rates. And those are things that we're using to kind of go back out and re-educate where we see opportunities with physicians not responding. We also participate very closely with population health on a lot of quality initiatives around advanced healthcare planning, around um, you know screenings that need to be done on pediatric patients. And so what we try to do is um, get some of that documentation on the record to help with some of those quality initiatives on the outpatient side too. So we track some of that data. So that's all things that we track and we report up through our C-suite during our CDI steering committee. So I have data for inpatient, I have data for outpatient. Um, We also track, um, track our productivity, right? So I can see every day how many cases people are reviewing, whether those resulted in a query or whether that was a no show or the patient canceled the appointment if the physician responded to the query. So we have all of that data that we track pretty closely. Um, And I have one dedicated person on the outpatient team that does all of this for me. That's great. I think uh, one of the questions I feel like we've gotten more and more over the last few years is how to get approval for an analyst position. Um, (laughs) So I am already anticipating those emails coming in. Um, It's something where we talk a lot about um, internally as far as what we can provide article wise on that topic. But having that dedicated person just to deal with the volume of data is so valuable. I will say it is is difficult to monetize your work in this arena. I think it's best to just let the, you know, because it is prospectively being done and we don't get paid per case. It's more of a contractual agreement on that risk adjustment. And what I've been able to do is kind of take the average, um, you know, pre, pre um, CDI RAF score, post CDI RAF score and monetize it by showing we were able to move the needle 0.5% for every patient. And if you use that calculation and kind of look at how your RAF score is calculated, you can monetize it to about $8,000 more per patient annually. So there's ways to do it. And I'm happy to share that. That's a pretty complex algorithm, but there are ways to monetize it if you want to do that. Absolutely. It's, um, it, it can be really time consuming, I think, which is partly why people shy away from it or just don't have the bandwidth. But it, like you said, it's, it is possible <laughs> to come up with those numbers. You might just have to do a little bit of um, advanced calculations there to get there. Um, so you mentioned it briefly, the productivity piece, and we know that in addition to outcome metrics, things like your financial impact, the quality impact, all of that stuff, leaders have to consider kind of those process metrics. So your productivity, your query rate, all of that information. How did you establish 
these kind of more internal CDI metrics for your outpatient reviews? And then how do they differ from or even mirror the expectations that are placed on staff reviewing the inpatient settings? So on the outpatient side, there wasn't a whole lot of literature on what productivity should look like. There were a few things out there. So what we what we did internally is we kind of looked at what was published and what those expectations were for productivity. And then we performed our own kind of time and motion studies to get a feel for how long it really took a CDI on the outpatient side to maneuver through that chart, place a query, do the clinical review, all, the, all of that. <clears throat> and then we took into consideration how, um, how it differed from the inpatient setting where you know it was less complex, obviously. Um, there's not as much um, documentation to go through. So we did a whole kind of slew of time and motion studies, comparative analysis, and then came up with a, a predictive kind of way of establishing productivity. And then we set the team to that um, and told them that we were going to set it at 27 per day. That's, so that's 27 clinical re- reviews per day and that we were going to shoot to get to 30. And so for about a year, they were doing 27 a day. And as of this year, we moved it up to 30 and everybody's still exceeding that. So it was really just kind of looking at everything in a holistic approach to see how best we could be as efficient. And as we start to pull in some of the technology I've talked to you about, perhaps that will open up the team to do a little bit more complex review or go outside of just our primary care networks, but maybe start querying some of our psychiatry physicians, our surgeons our specialty providers on some of those more complex diagnoses. It differs just a little bit from the inpatient side because I said inpatient is a little bit more complex. Um, You're doing initial and then you're doing re-reviews. It's not one one review, right? So you keep those patients on your list. Whereas, um, you know, while they're in an inpatient setting until they discharge, whereas with this outpatient setting model, um, they're scheduled to be seen that day you perform those reviews prospectively in advance and then you're done and you get a whole new set of patients the next day. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think um, you're absolutely right that there's sort of a a dearth of literature even now about productivity in that outpatient and really any outpatient setting. Um, There's just not a lot of literature about that. Um, I think that'll probably change over time, but it's always good to hear others' experiences so that those who are starting out can kind of look at that and say, well, they seem like they're kind of a similar program to us and they can can kind of uh, troubleshoot off of what you've already discovered. Um, so we know healthcare settings are all connected, but obviously CDI programs largely because of programmatic concerns that we've already talked about, separate out their inpatient from their outpatient reviews. So if there is a CDI department that's listening that doesn't have the resources or the bandwidth for a full-fledged outpatient program, what steps can they take to help support the documentation integrity across the continuum of care? So I I think if you don't have the bandwidth, but you've got coders in that role, there are credentials for certified risk coders. There are things that you can do, I think, uh, where coders can actually place queries on the chart if they are, you know, educated in the risk adjustment models. So 
you could use coders to do the work. Um, in my program, I have a kind of a hybrid approach. I have coders. I have uh, someone who has a master's in social work who comes from a population health background. I have some nurses that, um, you know, are both RNs and LVNs. So I have a very, I think, broad spectrum from an educational perspective and from, you know, kind of a work experience background of individuals that can do this work. But I think there are ways to be very strategic and deliberate about how you do the work. So if you don't have the team and you don't have the bandwidth, I think you could use coders to get some of this, but you could also leverage some of the tools that exist out there. So if you have an EHR, um, electronic health record, whether it's Epic or Opti or um, Cerner, there are uh, templates, smart lists, uh, dot phrases, things that you can build into the record to prompt the provider to be more specific when documenting certain diagnoses. And so those are options as well that you could maybe leverage as trying to improve that documentation integrity in conjunction with maybe coders being your gatekeepers uh, to uh, identify when they're, you're lacking that specificity and maybe getting them to place a query on the chart, maybe creating a templated query that's very compliant that they can use to do that work. Um, and then maybe uh, it, it, you know, if you do, even if you don't feel the coders have the bandwidth to do that, you could maybe uh, do a cost kind of analysis with what it would cost to bring these people in, right, to do the job and how what your staffing needs are, and show kind of a predictive analytics model about what you would bring to the table if you brought these staff in. So you know, hey, here's our low hanging fruit. Here's where we currently are with HTC Capture and with our RAF score, getting that data up front and then predicting if you were able to just even prove that by 30%, maybe that's just two FTEs, what that would look like. And then if you were to you know, improve that by 40% and that's four FTEs, what that would look like. So there's things you can do to demonstrate to leadership, here's what we're leaving on the table if we don't invest in outpatient CDI. Yeah, I think that... Um that potential missed opportunities is, can be a very compelling conversation. I know we talk about that um, a lot on, when we're talking about denials as well, that sort of, you know, here's what we're losing <laughs> by not doing this um, is a really great place to start um, and doesn't require you to have the staffing in place to start looking into that either. Um, so I think that's that's a great piece of advice to to end on. We we have run out of time for our discussion today, but this has been really helpful. And thank you just so much for sitting down with me today, Tammy. As always, if our audience has any questions about the topic, you can feel free to email the ACTUS team at actus-inquiries at simplifycompliance.com. I will also put that email address in today's show notes on the ACTUS website and in your podcast app so that you can grab it from there. Now it's time for the ACTUS update, a regular segment featuring the latest news on what's going on inside the association. I have a number of things to tell you about today, so I will try to be as efficient as possible here. First, October 1st, 2022 marked Actus's 15th birthday. Actus was born because CDI didn't have a home of its own, and over the next 15 years, Actus staff and CDI professionals from all backgrounds came together to create rules of practice, guiding documents, templates, and all manner of resources, while simultaneously building a welcome, welcoming home and a network 
network for all to come together to connect and learn. To celebrate this momentous occasion, the ACTUS team has a number of festivities planned for this month, and we hope that you will join us. Because ACTUS really is our members, first and foremost, we want to feature your memories and photos in our celebration. I've put a link in today's show notes to submit those memories and photos, and we would appreciate any feedback you'd like to provide. Additionally, you can use code ACTUS15YEARS, all one word, at checkout to get 15% off ACTUS membership and select CDI products all month long. I will also put that link in the show notes so that you can shop that sale today. We are so grateful to all our members for being with us for the last 15 years, and we're really looking forward to the next 15. Secondly, and perhaps most excitingly, the 2022 update of the Actus AHIMA Guidelines for Achieving a Compliant Query Practice Brief was released for public comment on Monday, October 10th. This practice brief is incredibly important to the CDI profession, and we're thrilled to have worked with AHIMA again on this important update. You can read that updated brief and find the link to submit comments by following the link in today's show notes. Third, Actus's annual CDI salary survey is now open for responses until Monday, October 31st. Every year, roughly 1,000 CDI professionals answer the call and help paint the picture of the state of CDI compensation in the current year. In the past, Actus members have used the resulting data to advocate for CDI career ladders, higher salaries, and better budgets for CDI education, and more. The survey should take roughly five minutes to complete, and the results will be shared in aggregate in early 2023. The survey responses will remain anonymous, so please note we take your privacy on this sensitive topic very seriously. You can respond to the survey today by visiting the Actus website or using the link in the show notes. And finally, last but certainly not least, applications for the 2022 to 2023 Actus CDI Scholarship Program are currently open until November 30th. Launched in 2019, the scholarship program exists to assist CDI professionals in enhancing their careers with further education and to increase collaboration among their colleagues by sharing knowledge. Actus awards three scholarships annually for the following educational opportunities. The first award is a one-year Actus membership and enrollment in the Actus CDI Apprenticeship Program. We like to call this our newbie award for our brand new CDI professionals. The second award is registration to an online CDI bootcamp of the recipient's choice. And finally, our third award is registration to the Actus National Conference. This year, of course, will be registration to the 2023 conference, which happens in May in Chicago. More details about eligibility, the application process, and more can be found on our website, and you can find the link to the application in the show notes. That brings us to the end of today's Actus podcast episode. We'll be back in two weeks on Wednesday, October 26th for our next show focused on the updated Actus AHIMA guidelines for achieving a compliant query practice brief, which was just released for public comment on October 10th. Actus Interim Director Lori Prescott, RN, MSN, CCDS, CCDSO, CDIP, CRC, and Tammy Combs, RN, MSN, CCS, CCDS, CDIP, CNE, AHIMA Practice Director at CDI and Clinical Foundations will join Director of Programming Rebecca Hendren for the episode. The October 26th show will be part of our Talking CDI series. 
You can listen to the show anytime on the Actus website or via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. All the links we discussed during today's episode will be available in the show notes. And as always, we appreciate if you would take a minute to leave us a five-star review on your podcast app to help others find our show. Our intro and outro music is Media Noche by Dion Key, and our ad music is Take Me Higher by Jazzar, both obtained from the free music archive. If you have any suggestions for future guests or topics, please email us at actus-inquiries at simplifycompliance.com. Until next time, take care, everyone.